0: Hey guys, welcome to By The Horns, a Bitcoin podcast about South Africa. In this episode, I spoke to Andrew Patterson, a man who climbed to the top of Table Mountain every single day for an entire year. 365 plus one, 366 times. Now, for those of you who are familiar with Cape Town will know that this is a pretty epic achievement. It's not a big mountain, but it's not a small mountain, and to go up there every single day Anyway, it's wild. So, Andrew's South African dude, but he's married to an American and spends a lot of his time over in America. He was unlucky enough to be caught in New York City during the COVID lockdowns, and he got to spend the entire lockdown in New York watching the COVID craziness unfold and just seeing what a clown world a clown world can be. Anyway, we also got into the current state of the clown world we live in, the selective media outrage, cancel culture, Ukraine, Russia everything in between so this episode is extremely light on bitcoin so if you're coming looking for a bitcoin episode this one might not be for you however it's very high on hiking and stories about the outdoors and stories about being high in the outdoors anyway andrew's a great dude i really enjoyed it and i hope you enjoy this one cheers andrew how you doing man welcome to the show
1: Thank you, Val. It's good to be here. Good to see you. Like I said, I wish I had a beer to be cheering you with, but we'll just put great vodka.
0: Well, cheers to that. So, you were just telling me off air that you've um, decided to lay off the booze for a, an extended period of time. Is that a, yeah. a like a personal, just a personal challenge, or you're doing it for health reasons? Or what's the what's the reason?
1: Uh, well, I used to always take January off um, because I would always train for the August uh, cycle race, but um, I don't know. I just kind of got, gotten to a point right now where I just kind of feel like it's doing, it's not, I feel like it's like almost a crutch and I'm just defaulting to that as a wind down instead of actually just like really thinking about stuff and processing it that way. So it's just taking it day by day. Mm. I haven't put a, a, sa- a mark in the sand. and said like 10 days, 40 days. Um, I'm on day four. So let's, mm. that's for the weekend. Cause I've already been invited to a, a wine festival. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's my mates on saturday so that's the thing as well like there's always going to be oh but this is happening and then it's my mate's fortieth, and there's always excuses or reasons not to um but yeah just taking a little break
0: like i was saying to you off off feel like i'm not a massive drinker anymore really i just feel like it doesn't really add that much to my life and it makes me feel horrific um of the fact so it's weird how i mean obviously we talk about this all the time society that oh alcohol is like the worst drug but it's the one that's legal but that really is true you know like it's so so
1: destructive you know i mean i live in the states on and i've got this device which is available there called whoop and yeah you can literally see what three glasses of wine impact how it impacts my sleep and my recovery from whatever exercise Mm. i've done the day before Uh, it's never good so it's like i have it in black and white as well and i think that's also kind of why like, I've had quite a few red recoveries uh, since being back in South Africa. Because, um, I mean, South African wine is still the best in the world. I don't care what anybody says. Uh, Indeed. So it, becomes, it becomes difficult not to, uh, to enjoy the, the wine a little bit more than I probably should. Yeah. But so
0: you someone who's probably quite in, more in tune with your body and how you feel than most people. Because people might not know this, but you climbed table Mountain every day for a year. So yep. that that was that was how how um, I suppose you people for, you know, became famous. People started hearing about you. What inspired you to to decide that you are going to climb table mountain every day? And also, not the bitch route. You went up Platteklip, which is the worst route up table mountain, in my opinion, every single day.
1: It's it's so interesting how polarizing Platteklip is. I feel like, but I do feel like it's there's it's more that usually polarizing means fifty percent of people love it and fifty percent hate it. But I feel like there's me and like a handful of people that love it. And then everyone else hates it. Um, yeah. I'm definitely but, team hate Planet Club. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> well, I have become intimately aware of that route. Um, and I have to tell you, I actually really, really love it. Uh, everyone's always like, oh, you're never going to do that again. Uh, false. Like every chance, like when I come back to Cape Town, I'm always happy to go back. And, and it's amazing. Even though I've done that route every single day, I still sometimes get to places and be like, geez, I don't remember this. or, And I don't know if that's my memory. Like I always try and equate it to why women go through such incredible pain during childbirth and then agree to have another child. I think it's like your brain wipes the difficulty. Yep. I kind of feel like that's maybe what happened with me um, after I finished. And like, then your brain like just makes it out to be this wonderful uh, trip. And every time I go up there, it's like, shit. It almost feels like, was it this hard or was it, uh, this is it already? It's just a weird thing. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that was actually inspired from just uh, a horrific event for me, which was the company I was working for went through a restructure. And, you know, they asked all of us to apply for three roles in case we didn't get the one that we wanted. So we all knew it was bullshit and they were just kind of putting people where they wanted. And I, I kind of like to go against the grain. I also don't like to be told what to do. So I was like, no, I'm applying for this one role. And it was actually a test for them. I was like, if I don't get this, then this is not the company I want to be working with. I mean, I've been there for five years and I kind of saw this as like, this was almost like a sign. If I didn't get this, then this was not the company to work for me. I mean, ironically, they were in the alcohol industry. So my my desire to stop drinking now, has got nothing to do with them. But um You know, I'd also become disillusioned with the the industry and I'd seen what it uh, does to communities and stuff like that. And I know it's always a choice, but there's a difference when, like, I've seen the inside workings of how companies target people with, like, their final rant to buy their product. And, you know, I ultimately was thinking, like, long-term, do I really want to be a director in this company where I will be personally responsible for stuff like that? And the answer was no. So when they didn't give it, uh, when I didn't get that uh, job, then I was just like, okay, like process the retrenchment and I think Guess I'm walking Cape Table Mountain every day now.
0: <laughs> yeah. And
1: actually but it's, it's where things happen is uh, so that they told us the day before Easter weekend that we were going to be affected by this. When we told that our department had previously not going to be affected. So like, also who does that to someone like before a long weekend? And the irony is yeah. that I, the next day. Uh, I actually had a thought that I had a bride with mates in the afternoon for Good Friday. And I was like, you know, i would never climbed Table Mountain from sea level. And I lived mm-hmm. in seaport. So I was just like, cool, well, I've got nothing else to do in the morning. And it was actually a way that it helped me kind of process and think about the stress of what we were going through and that we'd have to reapply and all this stuff. Yeah. And, um, and anyway, so by the time that happened, I was already, I think, half in, half out and kind of preparing for what would my next step be? And I was very disillusioned with corporate as well. I'm not one of those people that likes to play the games and like I'm just like mm, do the work no. and be rewarded for that. And so you know, I started to actually think about all the things that I love doing in life. And one of them is being in the mountains. And I had like my own hiking group on WhatsApp because I got tired of inviting individual friends and then them pulling out at the last minute. And then people saying, "Oh, I wish I'd been invited." So it was just easier to create a group. So, hey guys we're doing skeleton Gorge this weekend i'm starting at eight if you want to join great if you don't no skin off my nose and so i actually started thinking about well you know maybe maybe i should start a hiking tourism company or become a mountain guide and so that was like the first will uh, kind of piece of the puzzle i had also actually been to a mate's new podcast launch um and which was Powerful beyond measure, interesting enough. And he introduced me to a woman who was doing clip 67 times for Nelson Mandela, and culminating with uh, Nelson Mandela's birthday, which I thought was like a really cool, different uh, thing. So there I was like, you're doing it, She was doing it through winter, uh, through rain and all that. And I was like, well, I know, typically on those days, no one really wants to do it with you. So if you need something, somebody, I'll do it with you. So like, that was another piece of the puzzle and, um, I mean, I'd been doing fundraising uh using my physicality with the cycle to a uh, Cape Town cycle to the product club charity challenge um and so I was just kind of like I, I made someone's got uh, another I think thing called distance for difference that he does like twenty four hours cycling in somerset west Stefan and um so like all these things were kind of building, and then i you know I'm a writer at heart and so I had uh started a blog the previous year and that was going really well. And I'd written a book, uh, in 2008 during the crash. And so I knew the process of like how to write a book and a couple of mates had actually said to me through my blog posts, like, you should write a book. So with like eight days before I was due to leave the corporate world. Um, you know, I was like driving past a good Hope center on the freeway. Um, the offices were in Stellenbosch, and I was like, you know, now I'll actually have some time. Um, maybe I should write a book. And my my, my first question was, but write about what? And I always said to people, be careful what you ask, because that question was actually answered from somewhere deep in my brain with Climb Table Mountain every day for an entire year. And it was crazy because it was such a simple um, idea, but it literally ticked every single box that I've been working on. And, you know, I think for me, I've always enjoyed personal development and pushing myself and challenging myself. And so this was like, the ultimate test. I almost felt like it was a life MBA of everything that I'd ever studied, physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. And now I was actually going to get to put it to the test. And so I was like the first time in my life that I literally felt like my soul was set on fire. I was like pooping and ordering. People driving next to me in traffic must have thought that I was having like some kind of uh, epileptic fit or something. Um, But I mean, you know, and then because of the fundraising that I'd done, I was also able to see the benefit of like having such a unique platform to just attach onto it and like, you know, show people how easy it is to donate one rand per climb, but then also come and be part of the climbs and like, you know, you could do hike 19 out of 365 or whatever. And so it was like all around building community and, and I personally believe for myself, like whenever the shit, it feels like it's going wrong or, you know, stuff isn't happening or, you know, there's some bad happening. It's like, well, there is bad, but there's always good that comes out of it. It's just, a mo- it's just a matter of perspective. And that perspective might come tomorrow, three days, or in three years time or 30 years time. Um, so this was also kind of a way for like us in South Africa, like we were just coming out of the Zuma years and there were a lot of people protesting, but I see more people like talking than doing stuff. And so, you know, I was just like, this is a way to actually build community and bring people together on solutions, not just you know, complaining about the problems. Um, so that was actually what became the ultimate test for me is uh, my ability and my faith and my ability to actually build community. Um, because the, the, the crazy thing was as soon as I had the idea, like I immediately went into, okay, so what are all the difficulties that I'm gonna face, weather, injury, sickness, uh, motivation, like all of that stuff. Um, and my brain literally was like, answered all the questions. Thankfully, I got, I seem to have got all the sickness out of my system when I was in my first seven years. I had whooping cough, mumps, um, my tonsils are taken out, chicken pox, um, it was so bad that I, my, I don't remember this, but my mom was driving me to the hospital one day and I just looked at her and I was like, I don't want to be Andrew anymore, uh, which I can only imagine was heartbreaking for her. But ever since then, like my, I don't really get the flu. Well, I don't really. I don't get the flu. Um, I don't really get colds. So for me, I was like, and if I do get it, it'll be a week out of the year. I wasn't like a sickly person where I had to worry about maybe doing a double climb for like 30 days or something crazy like that. Um, but yeah, so it was like, it was great. It was, I had 40 minutes still on the drive to work. And without really having anybody's interference, I was really able to think about like all those things and. Come up with an answer. So every time someone threw a question at me that I, they thought that I hadn't thought about, I was like, no, yes, I, I, I hear you. And this is what I will do in that scenario. Um, and, you know, I, I mentioned that I'd done the Club Charity Challenge. And that probably was the greatest uh, lesson for me, because it was during my, like, fittest years in 2012. And I completely overestimated my abilities and underestimated the challenge. Um, and I was like, oh, let me just go there after work and climb it once and like do a speed test. Like, can't believe I thought that because like, going up and down once is not six times uh, consecutively. Uh, so mm-hmm. it was like preparing for a marathon by doing a sprint, which uh, meant that on the day I, I massively injured myself. I mean, I had pledged to do six. I only managed to do five. And that fifth one probably took me like two hours to get up uh my hip was in serious pain what i'd obviously done subconsciously was use my right leg uh on all the bigger climbs to pull myself up and so that taught me i mean that ended my trail running in cape town um and so you know it took me like six months before i could even run again um so that taught me right you've got to practice and train properly for this and so i actually put a six month training plan together for that which you know has helped me tremendously now with the work, with all the work that I do and and helping others as well, who battle to kind of attain a certain goal that they're working towards, whether that's with a diet or exercise, is typically everyone like starts, they want to go from zero to hundred percent instead of like using an on-ramp to slowly but surely work towards what your goal would be and what can how can you sustain that goal? Um, so that was, you know, kind of just, a whirlwind of a month Um, but yeah i mean i was very grateful that everything just kind of seemed to work out as well as it did and because it also that was the year that i ended up meeting my american wife who through a mutual friend connected us when she came on holiday and you know if i was still stuck in a corporate job it would have made like the dating so much more difficult whereas having the visa ready to get to the states and you know obviously it was Tied to Cape, well, was married to Table Mountain for a year, um, but yeah, once that was over, then you know it made actually made it a lot easier go, uh, after that, which was pretty cool. So you went up
0: every single day for 365 days. What what year was this that you that you did this?
1: I was uh, from the first of January 2018 till the first of January 2019. I actually did 366, and not because I'm yeah. not because I wanted people to say, oh, what about a leap year? You hadn't done it, but. Uh, just because it felt right to actually do the, a last one on my own, just to kind of process what I'd done um, into, and take that into 2019. And out of, out of all of those, like, what was the most challenging, what are the most challenging
0: conditions to go up the mountain in?
1: hundred uh, percent heat waves. And then obviously those winter storms where you've got both the wind and the, the wet. And then the third one was definitely when that black Southeaster was pumping. Um, I mean, it's like having a freight train, you can't hear anything. If someone's walking with you, you literally can't talk to each other because you don't hear each other. It's insane. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been on the mountains when that one is pumping, it's a completely different experience and quite, quite airing. Like you've really got to, you've got to be completely present thinking about every step and, um, so and then obviously having the northwesterly with the rain, um that was that was also pretty challenging. But I at least got to see something I've always wanted to, and that was waterfalls cascading off the front face of the mountain. Um and and also being the only idiot out of seven billion people at that time on top of Table Mountain when I did get there. So it was it was quite quite nice. And but also I realized why I was the only person on top of the mountain. <laughs>
0: So, I mean, for people who don't, who've never done Platter Clip, it's like going up the front of Table Mountain, right? Like, if you're going, if you think of the mountain, the the table part, you're going like straight up and it just zigzags up there. And it's what, 700 meters altitude gain, thereabouts? Uh,
1: From from the road to the uh, cable car, it's 720 meters of altitude gain, yeah. So, were you going to the cable car every time? Or were you just going to the top top of the gully, the cable car? Every time to the cable car. So, what I did was, for me as well, like to kind of think about how different and, and be a little bit more present and intentional for every day is I took a photo every day at the bottom with Table Mountain in the background and the lower cable cable station. Yeah, And then I took a photo of myself because I shaved my hair off and uh, like got to see the transformation of that. And then also like the beard, no beard, whatever. And then an, a photo of the stone that I picked to represent each day's climb. And then another one at the top with lion's head and mm-hmm. the top cable car um but obviously i mean there's so many days where i started with, with a clear at the bottom and got to the top and it was completely overcast um so but i would say at least 70 days uh maybe even more where i'll get to the top and wouldn't see anything so that was kind of like my my ritual on spot to always get to as like the halfway point and then obviously come back down as well when the weather was horrendous
0: yeah, and that's the thing with Table Mountain, right? Like, the way that changes so quickly. And in summer, when the southeaster is pumping that, it like, you get, the, you get the, the, the clouds coming over the mountain, and it's just covered in,
1: in cloud, so you can't see anything. Yeah, and John, it's, there's actually a 10-degree 10, 10 temperature change uh, between the road and the top of the mountain. So a lot of tourists actually get caught out, even just standing yeah. to catch a cable car, because it's hot at the bottom. It's like 30 degrees, and then you get up there, and the wind's blowing, and it's 20 degrees. Yeah, uh, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's amazing. To, it was amazing to see how quickly the weather changes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so did you have any like harrowing
0: experiences up there where you, you know, injured yourself or was any like any, does any single climb like really stand out to you? Uh,
1: thankfully I didn't have any particularly bad ones in terms of injury. Cause I had a lot of time while I was training to think about like, like I was going to be essentially climbing a million stairs. So I was like, what's the difference between like doing 799,000 fine. And then the 800,000 one, you, you suddenly twist your ankle or fall over and break a wrist or something. And for me, it was all about like losing concentration and, and also like thinking, Oh, I've done this so many times. I like know everything. So let me take a photo while I'm walking or video while I'm walking. I would always make sure if I did anything like taking a photo or speaking to people like really engaging with them would always be standing still. Um, but I think one of the most harrowing two that stand out was when, cause I, uh, I used to always log in with a WhatsApp group specifically designed to track people on the mountains. So they would always know what time I started, what the route I was taking, how many people, and what time I planned to be off the mountain. Um, and on this particular day, it was actually the eight, no, 10th, no, 16th of April. Um, and I know that because it was six days after the hundredth climb and halfway up the mountain, there was a day when these idiots had spray painted like 14 different times. And I was like, my blood was boiling and like, there was so much graffiti on the mountain and it looked fresh. So it looked like I was actually going to run into them. And so when I took out my phone to take one of the pictures on like for like the 10th time, I actually got a message from the guys tracking me to say, hey, we've got some hikers in distress on Smuts, on young Smuts track. Like, would you mind please helping with like, I said crowd control, but I mean like, I was like, who's actually gonna be up there? Um, but anyway, this was like late in the afternoon. And by the time I got there, unfortunately, the one hiker had actually passed away from a heart attack. And now the sun's setting like 20 minutes we're like a little bit down so much track from where the top of uh, what's it called? The highest point? McLeod's. McLeod's Beacon. McLeod's Beacon. Yeah. Um, so the Ranger was like saying, you know, could you please get them down safely down Skeleton Gorge? And I'm just looking at the sun going down. Like this is, they don't have torches. I didn't, I had stupidly taken my torch out of my bag. Uh, but anyway, so managed to negotiate with the cable company to stay open and then I realized about if we could get to the top before sunset then at least that is flatter and safer to mm, get them yeah. uh, to the cable station which we did and then thankfully we walked past a couple of groups of the rangers to uh take the body down and they gave some spare torches for this i mean and it was it was a crazy thing because i went from being like my blood boiling to like being brought back down to earth of like you know how yeah. uh, precious life is And also like, you know, walking with four people that had just lost their friend. Um, Yeah. Like, you know, just trying to talk to them and take their mind off of it. And then their gratitude for, you know, helping them. Like, it was amazing. By the time I got down to the bottom, I hadn't even thought about the graffiti anymore. Mm. Um, Yeah. So that really stands out. And then the other one was like, just being in nature so much, it like really paid. I, I learned to listen to my intuition. like. I had a thought to put on my shoes because i was doing a barefoot hike on the day i would and then like the rain would start five minutes later um but another one was when i was up at the top and the cable station was closed for like two weeks when they do repairs and maintenance between july and august and for some reason after i'd taken my photo i was just like oh, let me just walk past the cable station past the the shop at the top and then just like do a different loop just to kind of see the sunset and everything. And as I did that, I actually walked past three hikers and they were all from, they were all foreigners, but working here. And they had climbed up Skeleton's Gorge and were hoping to catch the cable car down. And they didn't know any other way back uh, how to get down. So thankfully, I was like, okay, well, follow me and I can help you get down Bloodaclip Gorge. And then gave them a lift back to uh, where most of them were in Frida So I was like, if I hadn't done that, I don't know. They already would have tried to go back the same way, which, I mean, that's like a five and a half hour hike. And that was already at like 10 to six or 10 to 10 to five in like a winter evening. I mean, it would have been a horrible night for them. So it was like, those probably like, there's a lot of little days like that where, where like uh, stuff like that stands out and ironically, all the, all the, all the most harrowing experiences or, or worst weather days are what stand out. Like, and that's yeah. also was a great lesson for me. And, you know, um, we tend to hate or like of a better word, like when the shit, hits a fan, but gen- generally that's actually where we learn the most and what we then look back as, you know, really inspiring ourselves of like, oh, wow, I actually overcame that or experienced that. And I'm still here today. So. Yeah yeah it's that b-type fun that's not fun
0: at the time but when you think back on it you think back on it favorably because like it shaped you but you know um most people don't know this but table mountain more people die on table mountain than on everest every year um and it's exactly this because it looks like such a friendly mountain it's oh it's only a thousand meters the climb's only 700 meters and then it's 10 degrees cooler like you say on a normal day but then the weather blows in as it does um and people get caught up there without torches without jackets um and they die from exposure. Um, This is
1: hectic. (laughs) It's
0: it's quite a dangerous mountain.
1: Yeah. And also, uh, you know, it's not like Disneyland, where there's rails around all the the cliffs, and there's a ton of them. And so if you can't see your hand in front of your face, and you just think that it's like flat on every direction, or you get spun around, and you can't remember which way, and you're not seasoned, so you don't know, okay, this wind is a Southeaster, so that's the kind of direction that I need to go to get to, you know, you end up walking off, off a cliff. Um, so it's, yeah, to your point. And I think it's a blessing that it's so close in proximity to the city and a curse. And I think Mm. the blessing is that it's accessible, but the curse is that people like if you were, if you were going to the middle of the Karoo to climb Table Mountain, you'd be thinking all the things that you should be of like, do I have a bag, like food, uh, do I have like a torch? Do I have a wet, uh, like a warm jacket or extra jackets? Do I have yeah. enough water? You know, like so many people yeah. I walk past didn't even have any water on like yeah. a scorching day. And they just, I think they also hear that you walk up Table Mountain. And while there is a path, I mean, it's an insane <sighs> climbing the Empire twice. Yeah. 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 You're hiking, you're not walking. <laughs> and you've, <laughs> I've come down
0: plastic Club Woods before and a group of, of Chinese businessmen in suits and dress shoes were coming up.
1: <laughs>
0: and I was like, what's going
1: on here? And this is exactly it because people just don't, they just don't think, you know. Um, well, as you yeah. said, that you think of the final uh, climb of May, 151st climb. And it was, I had a, a, a journalist who had already climbed twice with me. And she said, let me know when it's going to be wet and rainy and she was an experienced climber she had all the right gear and so she's like i'd love to join you on one of those days and i was like oh, i can always use the company so she joined me i overslept that day and i i caught up to her where she was like talking to these two guys who were to a point like just dressed in jeans and you know also not the right shoes completely unprepared like a little plastic bag i later found out there was beers in the plastic bag and And I thought that they were talking to her and they realized their mistake and were like on their way back down. So, you know, after a couple of minutes, like, oh, you're from the Netherlands, that's great, all that. Then I was like, okay, cool, let's let's get going. And they were like, yeah, we'll, we'll follow you. And I was like, but you've got like no proper gear. Like you're gonna be hot when you're climbing, yes. But as soon as you get to the top, it's gonna be probably raining. No, not probably, it's definitely gonna be raining. The wind's gonna be blowing. You're gonna get like hypothermia. And they're like, no, 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 we'll be fine. So I'm like, okay. So we walk for about five minutes. And I can see that it's gonna start raining. So I always try to have my rain jacket and my bag covered in before it happened. And like I'd already stopped once with them to put on another warmer jacket underneath the rain jacket. And when I was putting on my rain jacket, I just looked at them and they were sitting underneath. There's a massive rock on Clip, And this guy was sitting there and he was like not looking happy. And I just said to him, listen, pal, I'm not going to stop for you again. Like, because you are now putting my thing in jeopardy. I don't want to be doing the stop, start, stop, start. Um, so, you know, I, I really suggest you go back down. And it was only then that he was like, okay, I think you're right. But uh, the journalist actually told me that she could smell like alcohol in their breath. And she, she thinks that they were still like either hungover from the night before or whatever. And I was like, it was so crazy that they didn't listen to my advice the first time around and be like, listen, I can tell you, you're not dressed for this. It's not going to be fun for you. Like I would turn around It like really he, he had to wait until he was really starting to get pelted with rain. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, I think it, I almost got to see that the phenomenon when people are climbing Everest, where it's like called summit fever, where yeah you're so close and all you can think about is the summit and you almost like disregard your own safety or others for that matter. Yeah. Um, and it's, it was just very interesting to experience it. Yeah. And
0: so after that, uh, your entire climbing experience at table mountain, um, for a year, have you then subsequently gone and hiked a whole bunch of other mountains around the world and has this opened up a, a new line of, uh, I suppose it work for you because now people want to hear your story. Um, and has this led you being able to hike a whole lot more than before?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's. Uh, I've been very fortunate to like with us be invited on uh, various podcasts. Um, I've been you know been doing a lot of speaking with regards to it as well. Um, but you know, I what's interesting is I love the outdoors and I love challenges. But I, I, I the the idea was answering questions that I had. It wasn't, and that just happened to be uh, what was kind of like the encompassing idea. It wasn't like I was trying to create a challenge and then got to the end of that, and I was like, okay, what next? Um, Ironically though, someone asked me, how close are you to the International Space Station with all the climbs up um, collectively? And I was like 63% of the way there. And my wife, Jessie was like, you're not going a hundred percent of the way on table mountain. You can come to the States and you can uh, add on there. But um, well, the nice thing about that is it created a real good level, base level of fitness for me and strengthened my legs. And also more importantly, the mindset. And so thankfully, my wife is also really fit. I mean, you've walked to Jesse, you've seen her powering ahead and like, we've gone to the grand Canyon, we've gone to uh, Yosemite. So the, the idea is to always enjoy the outdoors as much as possible. And I can tell you um, and I think we've actually spoken about this before in the mountain, but anybody who has an opportunity to go to the grand Canyon, mm. it's beautiful to see from the room, but yeah, you have, you get such a different perspective when you actually hike down uh, to the Colorado river and back, which is like a six hour journey, um, like it's like 22 kilometers. Um, so it's, it's nice to have had that fitness. And then, you know, we moved to New York, six weeks before the pandemic Um, and there's no mountains there, but I had previously thought about like being in the States and coming up with another challenge to bring people together and like creating teams and like seeing who could could do more and use like a building to like climb it as many times in like 24 hours or something. Um, So anyway, during the pandemic, I used the stairwell in our building to kind of come up with another challenge. and then after that, uh, for for the whole of last year, like just as a nice way to stay fit in New York, I was I was creating the outline of each state's map, and then climbing the equivalent of their highest peak. So the highest elev- elevation of all the states combined add up, which is ninety three kilometers. And those three challenges together have now gotten me one hundred percent of the way to to the International Space Station, which is pretty cool. How high uh, is the International Space Station? I think it's like 408 kilometers above the uh, earth, which is, yeah, really it's intense. high. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but you know, it's like cool things in the States. Like being there, I'm like learning about all these different things. So I'd always known about the Pacific, uh, Crest Trail. Supergram. Yep. Supergram, yeah,
0: Pacific. And no, that's, oh, sorry. That's not, I'm, I'm, incorrect. It is the Pacific coast trail.
1: What is it called? Uh, it's, I think it's called the PCRT, mm. something like that but it starts mm. sort of in lower California and <clears throat> near the other border. And then you climb up the chain of mountains, going through the might get my brain going in my geography. Um, yeah. all but way anyway, up to you Washington go, state, right? Like you, you go, go all the way up, up. You go past up the and yeah. up the west coast and you end up in Washington. Um, yeah. But then I've also learned that there's the Appalachian Trail. And oh, then yeah. the one that really excites me is the Continental Divide Trail. Uh, and that is basically, you know, the Rockies and they call it the continental divide because any rainfall on the East flows to in the Mississippi and gets to the, um, Gulf of Mexico and anything that lands to the West, uh, then ends up in the Pacific. Hmm. Um, and that's, that's pretty intense. I think that's like a four month, uh, trail to do. Um, so when I have that kind of time that I can take off and, and, push myself and do it and hopefully i think because i've what i've learned is you know if you're going to do something epic like bring people with you and even if it's just like inviting people to do one or two days on that trail with me um it's just it's so cool to see people and hear their story of where they are physically on that day and what their life has been like and then see their efforts based on that so that was one of the great things about actually including people like my sister now, Caroline suffers from adrenal fatigue and an underactive thyroid, and honestly, probably shouldn't have done the climb. But she was so amped to support me, and they still live in Johannesburg, um, and so they they flew down in March uh, between my niece's birthday and climbed with me. And you know, she took four hours to get up there, but like watching her work through nausea and dizziness, and like just like I explained to her, just get to that corner, like get to the next corner, and then we can sit down there. I like have a supporter, like just, you know, breathe, enjoy the view. Um, it was, uh, it was really am- amazing to see her. And then also to see their response, uh, reaching the top, um, the elation that so many people got mm-hmm. from like, their brain going like, I would never do this. And then they were kind of like, okay, well, if you think it every day for a year, maybe I can do it once. And then like seeing people since like they started to get into the mountains more, you know, it's just sometimes it's all it takes is like one crack. And then you are, you know, like for me, even like now I'm like, okay, I did that. So if my brain thinks of something like climbing our building in New York, I mean, I can tell you right now, there's nothing worse than climbing a stairwell, nothing. Um, But it's also, it's also the fittest I've ever been in my life. I mean, now when I, when I climb Table Mountain, like compared to the stairs, it's easier. Um, But it's also just because like, who wants to look at concrete and just, boring stairs totally. over and over. I mean, all I was yeah. doing is looking like counting the, the flights of stairs. Okay, like 24, 25, 26. Thank God for podcasts and music. Yeah. Because otherwise I probably would have gone a little bit insane. But like, again, that all those things have taught me about like, how once you've built discipline, um, or sorry, I don't think you, anybody builds discipline, I think we all have discipline. Um, but we just need to find something that we really love and we're passionate about. And then we will discover what discipline we actually have if we just apply our minds mm. and put together like an actual plan of how we want to achieve something. So on that point, there must
0: have been some days when you were waking up in the morning to go and do seven months and you really didn't feel like doing it. And how did you power through that?
1: Yeah, look, one of the one of the things that I... Um, really worked on while I was training was trying to overcome that mindset of like, Oh, not today. So one of the key things that I did was I eliminated using the lifts and I already lived on the eighth floor of an apartment building. So that was kind of like, you know, I've already done it five times in a day, go out for dinner with mates, get home after 12, pretty boozed. And then like, you know, my brain would be like, you know, no one will know, but the thing is I would know. And so I was like, no, just climb the stairs. So that was a huge portion of helping me kind of break that mindset of just waking up and doing something again. Um, and I think also knowing that there was an end point, I was like, I worked it out. I mean, I love stats and all that type of stuff. So I worked out at that stage of my life, it was only 2.56% of my my life. And as I get older, that's going to be less and less. So I was like, and also because I knew there's going to be so many lessons and, and things that I would learn from it um that kind of helped me and but i think one of the biggest things as well was i set eight days as like my final thing in december to train and on the fourth day of doing a thousand meters or more uh was devil's peak and i woke up to the wind howling in seapoint and if it's blowing there then shit like it's going to be horrendous on devil's peak and I woke up to all my mates like cancelling and saying, oh, not today, not today. And I mean, I vividly remember lying there just like looking at the ceiling going, I just want to turn over, pull the covers around over me and get, go back to sleep. But because of all the training I've done, I projected myself into the future. And I was like, this time next year, you don't have that luxury. So just get up, get dressed, drive there and just do it. And because I was alone, and because there was also no one else in the mountain, I was, Devil's Peak has got the most beautiful view of Plutoklip Gorge. And so it was amazing to really see it and kind of think about what I was doing. And I was also having a lot of fun. Um, and so for me, it was a great way of like embedding that feeling. And I actually was like telling myself, like, remember these days next year when you don't feel like getting up, you're probably going to be having as much fun as this. Uh, so that's why you do it. But, you know, it's just also, timing. And it's funny how thing, little things happen that I can look back now uh, that I've written about that helped me. So the I think the worst part mentally came when I was getting to the halfway point And there was like so many storms that were coming f- like five days in a row. Everybody was messaging me. And I got out of my rhythm of just worry about today, get to die- today's climb. Plan for the week, but just worry about today. And I started, like, thinking about all the four storms coming through and, like, getting overwhelmed. And, and Jessie had booked a trip because she was still living in San Francisco at that stage. And she, um, she actually came to support me over the halfway point. And, I mean, I didn't realize it at the time, but, like, now, looking back on that, that was so crucial to have her enthusiasm and her support. And she would always climb with me when she was back here. And that just helped me, like, get over that, you know, shift. Because, I mean, once I got to halfway, I, know, I knew how much effort had gone into that. But now I had fatigue, like, heavy legs, and I still have to do that same amount. Like, it was very easy to start getting, like, a little bit overwhelmed and thinking, like, do I really know what the hell I got myself into? Um, but I think also because I'd done five flutter clips in a row and had felt that, I then as I started getting more tired throughout the year, I would just tell myself, okay, this is just like doing lap number two, or this is just like doing lap number three, and you've done that in a day. Um, So those were all like little things that kind of helped me to get over that. But it was only really that halfway point, which was the worst. And then once I got through that, every day was closer to the finish. I was closer to the finish than I was to the start.
0: Um, So were you like getting more and more tired throughout the year? Like were you getting progressively more tired? So, okay. So your body's just not having enough time to recover and guess like yeah, it's getting.
1: So my, the best way I can explain it is my body probably up until the end of April, maybe the middle of May was like from April to middle of May, I was like at probably at the, like, the fittest and at my peak. So as an example, when that call came through, I actually put the nail to the hammer to climb up to the top and I um, ran along the top because I was worried about time, which thankfully I did, because that all helped to get gain more light time to take people along the top. That had happened in July or August. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been able to put the hammer. up. I probably would have got to the top like in the dark and tried to find them in the dark. So, it's, and then as I got past May, then my body and also my brain was just like starting to really, really struggle with that. And but it was, again, ironically, the more I'd done the more of an impetus it was for me to be like, well, you've done this. You've done 173 days in a row now, so use that knowledge to like prepare or just like get uh, over the hurdle uh, today. So that was kind of, kind of the thing. Just quickly, I want to say, I think it's a bit blurry because of the light. Do you want me to just put the light on quickly? Yeah,
0: turn Turn the light on, it might make it a bit better, go for it.
1: And I might need to sit a little bit closer. Yeah, that's fine. Is that better?
0: So, I've got a mountain story. Um, I don't know if I've told you this story yet. Um, so, I am an avid hiker myself. Um, and uh, myself and two mates went up into this cliff that we'd done before. Um, it's called the Devil's Cliff. It's kind of up near uh, Stellenbosch, between Stellenbosch and Franchuk. It's in that range of mountains over there. Um, and um, it's this narrow kind of cliff you go into, it's very steep, we have overnight bags, um, we wear overpacked, but so we hike up there with our, with our backpacks, and it's probably about, I don't know, three hours up. And then it's very, very steep, all the way up through like over like a boulder field. And then we got to a dry waterfall, you have to climb up the waterfall, and I'm terrible with heights. So we've got ropes climbing up there with our packs, um, I'm not having a good time, um, because I just don't do well with heights. Anyway, I climb up there, and then we get into a slot canyon. So, the canyon walls are like 400 meters high on either side of us, like crazy, crazy, super high walls, very sheer. And the, the cliff just gets narrower and narrower in the slot canyon, until it's about 25 meters wide, so very narrow. So, we get up there. This is roughly where we want to camp, and as we get up, there's a troop of baboons above us. So, the troop of baboons runs up, up the cliff. we like, whatever. Um, we pitch out our, our campsite there. So we've got tents with us, but for the second time, I've carried a tent up there and not pitched it. Terrible wow. idea. Hiking 101. If you take a tent, stay in it. If you're not going to stay in a tent, don't bring it. Because <laughs> yeah. that shit's heavy. Anyway, so we found a little overhang. Uh, we set up our camp there. And um, then, crucial error, I'm blind. So I'm wearing, well, I say blind. My eyes are bad. Um, but I'm wearing my prescription sunglasses, not, not these ones that I got on now. Um, and it's getting dark, so I'm like looking through my bag and I realize I don't have my normal glasses, I only have my dark glasses. So, that's the But then the second crucial error was was a beautiful evening, or like sunset, and I'm like, this is a great time to have three grams of mushrooms. Down the hatch, have some mushrooms. <laughs> and then we're sitting there, watching the sunset, it's amazing, the mushrooms start I kicking you in. Of all of uh, yes, but I've taken the most. My other mates yeah. have taken like one gram and then taking two grams so <clears throat> but we're sitting there and all of us are like experienced hikers um everyone's very fit we know what you're doing but we're sitting there and we hear some rocks falling in the distance like down the cliff we're like ah oh, you know some rocks and then over the course of half an hour these rock falls start getting closer and closer until a rock the size of a rugby ball falls about 10 meters away from us and hits the Thank ground you. and just smashes into like a million pieces of shrapnel just like blasts us the shrapnel and then all hell breaks loose so now (laughs) in this canyon um and there's about two hours of daylight left it was in summer, so we were there we got up at about five o'clock so it's like pushing towards seven there's still some light and um we've realized that these rocks are falling down the mountain either by baboons or this is one thing we didn't factor in was that maybe this is just what this canyon does that as it cools down it's so sheer rocks just naturally fall off the cliff Um, and because you're at the bottom you that's where they obviously all aggregate so it doesn't matter if they're falling 100 meters either side of you like they bounce their way down and like some shrapnel makes its way to you so we start to freak out now because we don't know if it's the baboons or the or the cliff and the mushrooms aren't helping in this entire <laughs> ordeal and neither are my dark glasses because it's getting dark and I can't see so I've got a headlamp on <laughs> with a pool of lights and dark glasses and three grams of mushrooms, like really started to kick. So we like run up the cliff um into like this little waterfally area, and we find like quite a big tree in there, and we're hiding under the tree. And these rocks are just like falling around us. Like every five minutes, a rock come. And the sheer terror that because you hear this thing like 10 seconds before it hits the ground, you hear it like I mean, like brrrr, then it bounces down the down the canyon like a like a pinball machine like and then shatters everywhere and the rocks just like smash over, over like a
1: real life uh, mario brothers game
0: very <sighs> right. i felt like i was on the beaches of like, in normandy and i was being, <laughs> i was being shelled so <laughs> it's uh, it terrifying so like all we had all we had a sense of humor failure like the novelty wore off yeah. we're like this is not very cool anymore because if a rock this size hits you it's doing terminal velocity, right? If it hits you on the shoulder or on the foot or the hand, like bones are broken. If it hits you on the head, dead, right? So we all realize the gravity of the situation. Yeah. But now we're tripping our faces off. So, so we run back to our bags and we're like, okay, stuff this. We're out. We're going to go back down. This is a decision we make. So we're trying to pack our bags now. So I'm trying to pack my bag, but like I'm all thumbs because my brain is just not, it can't string multiple events together for like doing a sequence of things to like pack your bag, get the hell out of there. So every time I put something in my bag, I pull something else out because my brain's not functioning correctly. And these rocks are just, when we're in this overhang, but the overhang is like this wide. So it's like just enough protection to protect us from being hit in the head. But like if a rock falls in front of us, it's going to bounce ricochet at you. And they, and they were. Like we're getting rico- ricochets the whole time. So <clears throat> busy packing our shit there. And they're like, no, we're going to go down the waterfall, climb back down. So I'm like, guys, hang on. First off, I can't see. Second, I can't really climb. Third, trip my face off. Fourth, the rocks are falling where the, the, the baboons are throwing the rocks like at the top of the waterfall. So we'll be totally exposed. Now we have to climb down in the dark. With dark glasses on so as we run out and i'm like no guys not happening we're going up because we know there's a cave somewhere up there and we can use our headlamps. So we can get to the cave so we start running up and we put our bags on our heads and we're like running no, through this narrow good. cliff and like the rocks are hitting our packs and stuff and yes. we get like we see there's like this embankment that opens up because uh, it's super sheer but there's a, a, a bit of a slope that's not as sheer that you can go up and it's like grassy so we're like Right, my friend, Dasu goes up there to scope where we're going. Right up there, and there's a bigger overhang with a spot where someone has made a fire before. So we pull in there, and when we sit there, we're on the opposite side of the, of the, the, the very narrow cliff. Now we're about 200 meters further up, and we can see where we were, and we can see baboons 200 meters up the cliff, directly above us, just chucking rocks down the cliff. So they obviously have had like a, a million years of evolution in that cliff to know that if a leopard comes up the cliff, you throw a rock at it, it goes away. And obviously they were like, This is what they were doing. Man, so, yeah. but just the 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 like the, the sequence of events that had gotten to that point. Like we'd walked up this random cliff, um, dislodged the troop of baboons, then without thinking, decided to eat a whole bunch of psychedelics, and then found ourselves in this predicament where we could legit die very easily. And no one knows about it. People yeah. knew we were up in that cliff, but like you can't phone anyone because there's no reception. And what yeah. are you gonna do? You can't get down because you can't go down this flipping. Uh, waterfall that's kind of blocking us. Yeah, it was crazy. And that, that taught me a healthy respect for how quickly things can change in the mountain and never, yeah. ever do psychedelics near baboons.
1: <laughs> I think that's a pretty, uh, a pretty decent uh, realization to come to to, to avoid. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Man, also, my,
0: my, my tolerance for baboons is now zero. I'm not one of those people who are, and I, I grew up on a nature reserve. I'm like an environmentalist at heart, you know, but like, fuck a baboon. No time for them. (laughs) Did they leave you alone then? Or did they not see that you've moved? Baboons at night go to go to bed. So as soon as it gets dark, they tap out. Um so as soon as it got dark, they stopped throwing the rocks. But we could hear them shouting. And then in the morning, when we woke up again, they were chucking rocks again. And we just got the hell out of that cliff. We're like, fuck this. But like all three of us, like when it was clear that we were now in safety, like the adrenaline, like stops like stops flowing through your body, and you come to terms with what's happened. And like all three of us, like your guys, like we could very easily, one of us could very easily have died or gotten very, very badly injured in that. Um, and and you know that's not like climbing in a mountain and slipping and breaking your ankle. <laughs> it's, it's like another another type of thing. So um yeah, word word to the wise: if you're gonna take uh, mushrooms in a cliff, make sure there's no baboons there.
1: Yeah, I mean, I wonder how many there's like a baboon tracker. Like you can see the spots moving around on the mountains. You're like, okay, we can go there. But yeah, that's, that's <laughs> those, are, those are one of those stories that you're always happy to have made it through with like no, uh, venue, yeah. but you know, you also now know how bad it could have been. Oh, yeah, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, can yeah, it happen yeah.
0: so, so quickly. And I've been, um, I've been in the Cedarburg before where we went up to uh, Wolfberg Arch. Um, so we had up the cracks and we planned it that so we were like, it's going to be hot. Cause this is like October. So we're like, it's going to get hot. Um, it's going to be 30, 38 degrees that day. We checked the report. So we went up super early. So we, we started hiking at like seven. Um, so we made it into the crack by, by nine, hoppers eight, hoppers eight pretty much. So before the sun was like, actually, I think even eight o'clock before the sun was really on the slope, we were like in the cracks. We we're like, this is cool. The biggest part of the climb is done. And if people are familiar with the, with the Wolfberg arch and the Wolfberg cracks, one of the best hikes on earth it's phenomenal but so we got into the crack um and then mission through once you're on top it's kind of flat so then we went over to the arch uh it's i think it's like eight or nine k's one way so it's really it's not that far but if you've got your overnight bag like um but here's the thing about that hike is that there's no water so or nearby so we got all the way to the arch we took uh i don't know we probably had like two and a half liters each um so we knew with, I think we had capacity for four liters each. We knew it was going to be a thirsty time up there. And then from the arch, another 2K hike down to a stream where there was a bit of water because I'd been there previously and I knew there was some water. So we went down to this pool, had a swim, hung out there for the afternoon, um, filled up our water bottles. Also, this is where the psychedelics comes in again. Be careful with psychedelics in the mountain. Took some psychedelics. And then the weather blew in. So we're like sitting at this pool and like, the clouds blow in and we're like oh it's cold here it's getting a bit overcast let's go back to the site of the arch so we mission back to the arch put our like put our warmer clothes on we're walking up dude like 100 meters out of this cliff it is 38 degrees and we're like whoa the weather changes like that so we went from like being like below 20 in this crazy little microclimate to being like 20 degree degree like change in temperature um up in, and if anyone's done this, this hike down from the arch towards Tafelberg side, there's like all these finger gullies that go down and it's super confusing. It all looks the same. Yeah. And now when you're tripping, once again, <laughs> all looks the same. So we like the three of us are like almost holding on to each other because we're like, guys, if we lose each other here, not a good time. Because one thing about a mountain is like when it's hot, man things go pear shaped very very quickly and luckily we had a lot of water on us but we didn't want to drink all our water because we had to hike down the next day still And there's no water at the top so you've got to be like quite sparing with your water so anyway in this like we made it up through the top of these gullies without losing us everything looks like a can everywhere it it took us half an hour to get down because three hours to get out because we were like trying to make sure we didn't get lost um got out the top of the gullies and then we like weren't talking for like this whole time because everyone was, everyone was like starting to stress a bit you know uh, yeah. because you're like getting really hot and then I uh, got to the top we're like okay it's fine but then got back to the arch and um, these two British brothers and their sister, three siblings like rock up um, and they started late so they've been hiking in the heat of the day and they each only brought one and a half litres of water with them so now they get to the top and they, we can just hear them like <laughs> we, yeah, we can just hear them whinging like from their little campsite down there and they're just bitching about how thirsty they are and they can't drink any water because they got to keep their water for the next day. And when you're up there in the Cedarburg, man, in summer, it gets dry and this is how people die man, very quickly because dehydration comes at you super, super fast. Um, and there's no way to save you up there, huh? Like, it's not like Table Mountain where you can call the mountain rescue and then someone will come in a bucky and pick you up. Um, you're out there, you gotta, you got to walk out or someone's got to come carry you out. So, yeah, it's... Um, Sure. It's uh, it can it can get go south real fast. Luckily, there are no baboons involved this time, though.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I uh, because I was gonna spend a year on the mountain. Like at the beginning of the year, I was like, I definitely want to take mushrooms on Table Mountain. Mm. Um, <laughs> but there, it's like one path up. Yeah, I knew I couldn't get lost or like. Yeah. But it was very interesting because uh, I actually I had two thoughts. One, I wanted to have mushrooms on the mountain. and The other one was I wanted to microdose and just mm. to see what that was like and uh it was a, it was amazing how it worked out so again i didn't want to force it and literally i spoke to my mate he was like yeah well let me know when uh, you want to do that and i'll sort you out and on like the end of august a mate of mine messaged me and she's like hey listen like we haven't done mushrooms together for a while like me and dave like we want to do this with you so like okay cool yeah, should you not that same day i went to support some mates who were playing at a club in in town and never spoken to this dude and, and he just walks in front of me and i just like him i'm like it's time <laughs> um and then i had september october november and december because i was only going to do it for one month microdosing but by the time i got to the yeah. month i was like well, what are you really going to know like one month, right? month yeah and what was interesting about the mushrooms was uh it was like a full like gram to start the month and like a gram halfway through and on one of the on one of those sessions I was lit the mushroom showed me what I was gonna feel like getting to the top on the final day and having my family there and friends and like the emotion of walking along the top to get to the cable station be like you've done it like you've like, yeah and it was like so emotional I was literally crying like as if that was where I was so when the day actually came I was like so much easier the process, and it also made me, I think, appreciate all the climbs towards the end of like really understand the magnitude, and not just be like, oh, "Let's just get to the end now." Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, thankfully, I was really stressed about what it was going to be like to climb because I've had some gnarly experiences with also like underestimating the strength of mushrooms and just taking oh, like yeah. a little- <laughs> um. But I kind of felt like with everything that I'd done and whatever, like I was just given. I was like being on the mountain, and I, I think what. What felt like, well, it was like two hours. Felt like the entire afternoon. Yeah, um, and it was just a weird sense of peace that was like over me when I was climbing the mountain. It was pretty cool. And like the, I didn't have any crazy visuals or anything, but it was also like watching the mountain breathing. Um, yes, which, which was pretty cool. Yes.
0: I, uh, mushrooms are an amazing, amazing thing. Um, you know, and the fact that you know we have access to mushrooms is. is phenomenal and the mountains are made for taking mushrooms in and this is why like one of the reasons why I love hiking is because like I love nature and I love going out into into the mountains but also taking mushrooms in the mountains and like just it gives you another level of of uh, appreciation that you don't really have when you're not on mushrooms you're like wow this is quite something and especially in the cape man. like we are so spoiled for for what we have here um, and nice. the the amazing hikes we have and like the sheer natural beauty is is something else. And then to be sitting up there with a group of your really good mates, you've just achieved like a big hike, you've just done like an eight, 10 hour hike with them, to so sit there um and you all kind of had a couple of mushrooms and you're having a look around, like it's a it's a beautiful, surreal experience. Um and I, I would
1: recommend it to anyone. Just don't yeah. do it near baboons. <laughs> no. <Jesus>. <laughs> <laughs> I will I will make I'm currently in Simonstown, and there's obviously a couple of baboon troops here, so I'll make yeah. sure that uh, I don't do that <laughs> Um
0: Okay, so let's switch gears a bit. So, after uh, climbing the mountain um, every day for a year, you went to America, and you went straight to the belly of the beast, straight to New York, right before COVID hit. And let's yeah. get into a bit of the of the clown world. Um, you and I have had a couple of conversations about about this. Um, I think we share a lot of similar views on this stuff, but so you were thrown right into the heart of you know, the belly of the beast of like peak clan world COVID response. Um, yeah. yeah. What, what are your thoughts about all of that?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, it was pretty crazy because, um, you know, I mean, New York became the epicenter for. For killing old you know, people. A good, a good, well, that too. <laughs> but like for, a month, for a month or so, like, you know, around the world, there was more cases and more deaths in New York than like most places combined mm. after it had their kind of explosion, yeah, but it was i mean I, I'm not gonna lie like when i when it first came out, I was genuinely worried um, yeah I was like, this is ten percent kidding ten percent of people. I was like coming exactly. home and I was taking the gro- leaving the groceries outside and like washing and yeah. cleaning it before they went back into the uh, into the fridge yeah. um, but thankfully my in my my corporate life i you know I studied and analyzed data. And so mm-hmm. like I, when, whenever I would go to one of our, uh, customers, like pick and pay or spa, uh, macro, you know, if I was proposing something, I needed facts to back it up. And the way you like, in, I was in category management. So that means, you know, when you walk into a store, that entire store is broken up into categories. And even when you have a category like liquor, there is, um, yep ready-to-drinks, which is basically beers and ciders, and you've got wine, and then you've got hard liquor. And within each of that, you've got uh, mm. vodka, brandy, gin, vodka, et cetera. And so, like, you could have a look at one of those top figures and be like, oh, like the store is doing terribly. Like, we're, we're losing money. It's wor- we're doing worse than last year. But then you break it down and see, okay, well, where is that happening? And it's like, oh, okay, brandy is actually doing fine. Whiskey is doing terrible. Vodka is Okay. But then it's also like well what's the largest share whiskey is the largest share and that's why because that's down no wonder your overall figures are down but actually there's a number of other areas that are doing fine so i think that mindset helped me kind of think about COVID differently to i think a lot of people so when they were talking about the death rate i was like okay but like let's share about it through the ages the age groups and there's different metrics in terms of it, like how healthy are you and i mean living in the states it is also beneficial to me because I'm not Republican. I'm not Democrat, and so I wasn't tied to mm. um, Trump. So he says something, and so therefore it must be bad. Yeah. And I actually think he did a lot of things correctly in the beginning. Um, yep. Like shutting down travel and like thinking about doing a couple of things. Um. But anyway, so then like it was interesting to see how like this person was like Andrew Kramer, not was it Andrew Cuomo Andrew Cuomo Yeah. The governor of New York was like propped up to be this amazing dude and just because he was holding briefings every month, every day, but I was like, okay, so what are the briefings actually telling me? And also like when they were saying, follow the science, I'm like, okay, well then show me the science. Yeah, I was like in pick and pay issues of like, no, no, just let's follow the data. Okay. Well then show me the data that backs up what I have to be doing. So, I mean, obviously it was pretty harrowing to be in New York. Uh, but honestly I got to see New York in a way that no one's ever going to experience again. Um, yeah, it was, Literally apocalyptic. Everything was closed. There were no tourists. So I was walking through Times Square with no one there. And I know that's never ever going to happen again. Yeah. And I sure that there were also people dying. And but you know, it's there's also just an ex, you've got to you got to live what you got to accept what the external circumstances are. Do your best and like not. I think also blow things out of proportion. Um. Mm. But yeah, I mean, like I just to be honest with you. My personal opinion is that we're going to look back on how we handle COVID and future generations are going to be like almost disgusted. Like what the hell were you doing? Like, yeah. why, why did you like force people to not be able to work and earn a living and then create suicides to go up and force little baby children to not see their families or go to school or looking at everyone through masks. I mean, like, I think it's. The dam- We don't even fully understand the damage that the way we've handled COVID um, has actually impacted people. Um, it's going to come out in, in years to come. Well, I mean, it depends who wins the
0: culture war, right? Because if, if we lose the culture war, then no one's going to be looking back and, and remembering it because the winners are going to erase this history and make it seem as if they did everything right, you know? And, yeah. and, and, and this is the worry for me, is that the level of... of uh fuckery that is happening in the in, in corporate media. Um and they are is such they've deviated so far from any semblance of the truth now. Um sure there's a lot of people that are seeing it for what it is, and, and red red pills are raining from the sky and people are waking up in, in droves. But there's a large amount of people that have so committed to that narrative um and they swallowed it to start with that now they can't walk it back because like how do you you know it's super embarrassing. How do you say to your friends and family, hey, listen, I was, I was totally wrong about this. Turns out masks don't work. Turns out that, like, sanitizing doesn't do shit because it's aerosol spread. Turns out Andrew Cuomo is a mass murderer. You know, like, people don't want to walk that back. Um, and, and then they just double down. And that's kind of the human condition for most people. Um, and, and when you just look at how they've grabbed the narrative of follow the science, when you and I both know that they are not following the science remotely, they trying to control the narrative and act as if they are the arbiters of truth and the arbiters of science. But that's not how science works.
1: Mm.
0: Being a scientist myself, I know. But that's not how it, it, it's happening. So I mm. see this massive battle playing out right now about who is going to rewrite, who's going to who's going to write the history of this, because um, they're trying their best to sweep it under the rug already. Um, and that, well, uh, yeah, think- it's scary.
1: No, I mean I do agree with you, but I think what's like just if you just take America as an example, what's amazing about the fact that it's actually fifty countries is yeah. you've got people like DeSantis who didn't do the yeah. typical thing, and in my view, like if I was a governor and trying to protect as many people, and but thinking holistically, like I think his approach was better than Cuomo's, and so absolutely, people yeah. were still going to die. I mean I don't know when zero COVID became uh, thought. Um, but well, protecting people and giving people the information to make the decisions is also, uh, like I just think valuable and, you know, one of the reasons why I also know that health has never been part of, uh, the interest for them is because they never ever spoke about losing weight or the food that you eat as actually being fuel and medicine for you. It was yeah. never speaking talking about like how, uh, excessive amounts of stress and fear switches off your immune system. So, like, all these different things, like, they would have been pumping that into people. They're like, just, you're all stuck at home. You would have been commuting. Why don't you use that commute to actually walk every day? And then, now you would have been, and six months into the pandemic, everyone would have been healthier. Well, everybody who chose to do that would have been healthier. Um, Yeah. So, like, because of that narrative in the States, I don't think that there's ever just going to be a blanket thing of like, oh, the way we handle COVID is amazing. I mean, just look at how they tried to tear down Norway. Um, I mean, I know different or Sweden. Sorry, Sweden has a smaller population; they're not as densely populated. There's so many different factors as in it, but the fact of the matter is, they were told you're killing people, and all these Mm -hmm. negative things are going to happen, and none of that materialized. So you can't change facts, and the facts will be there, and I think for people who want to believe that, you know, the blue states were the ones that handled it the best. Um, not much as, like you said, people have unfortunately made things part of their identity. Yeah. Rather than this is just a life choice. Like, you know, it's, oh yeah. yeah, whether I want to get vaccinated or not. Yeah. That's my choice. Like, why is it, uh, well, it's been weaponized. And that's I think yep. what has been interesting as well is we've seen the different control mechanisms of how much like Facebook, and uh, youtube and twitter are actually able to censor stuff and a perfect example was like the hunter biden laptop oh man and, and yeah. that's like i mean if you want to go down a rabbit hole that is like just whether, whatever he's done uh is one thing but how those companies were blocking people from sharing that information just before the elections happened like that's that was pretty telling
0: and they have now come out those same guys who were calling this russian disinformation the Washington Post, New York Times, have come out now and admitted to the fact that that laptop is real. It is not Russian disinformation. Um, and all of the information on there is damning. Um, and, I mean, we're talking, like, two years later. They're now admitting that that was the truth. But, obviously, the damage has been done, and that's one that swung an election or had potentially could swing an election. Um, and they were shutting down anyone who was speaking about it um, and trying to, you know, bring bring attention to it. Um, and here they are now, acting as if they were the arbiters of truth, um, saying that they, in fact, were lying, which is, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy to me that anyone can still take the corporate press seriously as a as a credible news source. Like, that's just awesome. insane. I,
1: mean, I saw a really, because there's a couple of independent guys that I follow uh, in the States. And it's also been interesting to see how, like, they get smeared as, like, right-wing uh, yeah. and all these people <laughs> things. But, like, the nice thing about uh, these days is all of them have, posts that are readily available so I can go and read what they've written or I can listen to their podcast and I can make up the decision myself and and you know when you listen to what people are being accused of and then you hear what they're talking about what they're saying you're like this is ridiculous and what's interesting is yeah. I feel like the, the corporate media are so locked in their stupidity and their bubble that they think's doing a smear campaign against Russell Brand yeah. saying <laughs> He's a terrible human being. I'm like, he's this all, guy, this guy, all he does is he's like, you know, hello, you wonderful 5.4 yes. million, oh, million awakened souls. Like we're, you know, and you just listen to what he says in the first five minutes. And you're like, this is bullshit. But what they don't realize is that all the negativity that they're using, no one gives a shit about the 55 plus, because they're not going to be the decision makers very, very shortly. Yeah. They're pushing people who are kind of like in the middle, to actually go, oh, like uh, Russell Bland, like I didn't know about him. Now let me go listen to what he has to say. Joe Rogan, oh, now I didn't know he was. Now let me go listen to what he has to say. And then you, if you have the presence of mind to just listen to somebody and make up your own mind, then you'll see, you immediately see like all the stuff that's coming out of the corporate media is bullshit. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or it's very, there's probably elements of truth, but they are always trying to was. tell you yeah. what this means versus just being like arbiters of like, this is the information. Um, Absolutely. So I just not going to be around i mean the figures of what cnn and fox and all those guys have is minimal and they're dying especially now that trump's not in office like you know yeah everyone was like on the edge of the seat because he was such a crazy dude and you never knew what the fuck was going to come out of his mouth you were just like yeah uh let me just tune in to see what what happened next um yeah watching soap opera basically it's like it was the modern day soap opera but uh you know, uh, uh, the interesting stat that I saw was 25% of people in America get their news from podcasts.
0: 25%. And, that's amazing. Yeah. So compared to five years ago where it was like single digits.
1: But if you take that number and you take, again, like it's interesting how you can uh, shape stats and chop and change. But what I'd like to know is of the population that's like between, say, 15 years old to like 45. So instead mm. of out of 330 million people, what's that population size and how many of those people are listening? I guarantee it's probably more, closer to like 50, 60%. Yeah,
0: yeah. anyone yeah. who's listening to news or who's listening to something, they're not listening to corporate press. And it's, it's like Michael Mellis says, like they're not the mainstream media anymore because they're not yeah. the mainstream because they're not getting the majority of, of listens and views. I mean, CNN on a, on a headline show do less than a million views on that. Uh, Joe Rogan gets over 11 million. On a, yeah. any given podcast yeah. i mean i think his he combined his podcast with peter McCullough and um uh, robert malone to are over 75 million downloads insane like <laughs> good luck trying to stop that and the podcast as a medium is the most is the most powerful medium because youtube they can sense you they can shut down the videos they can demonetize um because it's so centralized because it's so data heavy um but a podcast it's such it's so light on data like a, a audio if you're doing a 1 hour discussion it might be like i don't know 20 megabytes or something you can compress it down mp3 maybe you know 100 megs or whatever but it's not it's not that big and if you're streaming it it's even less you can self host that on a raspberry pi with like single board computer with your own little ssd plugged into it you can self host that and then broadcast that to the internet by the rss feed that anyone can grab it and literally, you cannot be censored. You can't be shut down. So the podcast as a as a platform um, is super super censorship resistant, um, which is phenomenal. And it's such a great way to get to get information because, like, when you're driving, okay, now because people are remote working, it's a bit different. But a lot of people are still commuting. You got three hours a day to listen to Uncle Joe talk some shit about take smoking DMT and and you know do jiu
1: <laughs> But I mean, the the other thing as well is you know obviously depending on who the person is, but if you really wanted to understand something, do you want to watch CNN and have like this person on for like 30 seconds? Like what am I going to, they can give me
0: the, they
1: can give me the, like, you know, he's a molecular biologist with 25 years experience, whatever. Or do you want to go to a podcast with somebody who's really good at interviewing and asking decent questions and maybe even has a slight understanding of (laughs) the subject? And over two hours or three hours or however long, that person actually gets to give you their own journey of what they've yeah. learned, how the mistakes they've made, like, you know, and then explain why they think like, think like it. And then you yeah. can go to somebody else who has a, a differing of and be like, you know, the interesting thing is, like, for me, like, no one has spoken about, like, if you are an athlete and you are 45 years old or under 45, this is what the risk of COVID is. And so I have just done my own like research of like trying to understand all of that. And I am like, the risk factor for me of what I have seen is like, yeah, I might go to hospital, but I am not going to die. So mm. why do I then need to buy into all the other bullshit that then gets fed of like, this is what you needed to, to be healthy. I am like, yep. no, that, that is one way, but it is not what I want to do. Um, and,
0: and-, and that same complex that is telling you um, the risk is super high because they're taking aggregated stats and they're saying the the infection fatality ratio is 2%, okay? And they take that across the in all age categories. Whereas you know, if you're between 35 and 45, actually your infection fatality rate is like 0.1% or 0.2%, super low. But then more importantly, that same that same cabal or like I I don't know, a conglomerate that's telling you, you know, how dangerous COVID is, is not telling you anything about health they're not telling you, they're telling you to take as many pills as possible, except post paste. I don't want you to take that one. That's the one pill they don't want you to taste. take, is ivermectin. But all other pills, they're like, take all these <laughs> pills. Um, but there's nothing about get vitamin D, so be outside, de-stress, you know. Yeah. Um, you go outside and, 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 and hike and get exercise, do aerobic <laughs> activity, you know. Like, none of that, like, basic stuff that our grandparents have been telling us about, like, looking after your health. Yeah. So these guys don't care about your health at all they care about making money um they care about monetizing eyeballs as much as possible and more and more as they lose relevance they get more and more shrill um because operation mockingbird is a real thing you know like having people strategically placed in the media by intelligence agencies to perpetuate certain narratives is well documented this is a real thing um and this is what you have to accept the fact that a few of those guys in the corporate press, this is exactly what they do. They are paid by the intelligence agencies to propagate certain narratives, um, to do with that information what you will, but yeah. you believe them to your own, <laughs> your own detriment, you know? Um, I mean,
1: so like, if if something really genuinely works, like why my whole thing is like, why would you then force people, why not just say, we're giving yeah. you the choice, uh, and then once it's been in the the system for a period of time, you can actually show statistics to say, this is how much of an impact it's made. And then people go like, oh shit, I haven't done that. I'm going to do that. And I mean, like from the word go, I, you know, we've been, we've been, I think my wife is open-minded and questions things and also doesn't like to know what to do. Um, But, you know, we, when the, when the vaccine first came out and everyone was saying little things, like you don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to have serious questions that, need to be answered number one what are the long-term effects Mm. and and everyone's like oh there are none like how how do you know know. like (laughs) how do you know that but they've been working on the mRNA uh, vaccine uh, type for like 25 years i'm like yeah and you're now just injecting it mass on a mass scale to yeah it's not in the market
0: yet why is it not in the market yet oh because it hasn't passed all the
1: safety tests yeah yeah and then so and then i was like okay that's i bet you Uh, it's never going to end like it's never just going to be one or two and it's sure as fuck like yeah period six months goes by and then it's like oh yeah actually you're gonna need five already
0: (laughs) some people want to know fifth one
1: but what but again what's interesting is like what you to bring it back to what you're saying earlier about how depends who wins the culture war i think what's happening is we have a a wonderful opportunity and i'm grateful for this as well that we have COVID doing this because once people get power they never, ever go like, okay, this is enough. They're like, oh, yeah. let's just keep pushing. Now let's vaccinate five-year-olds. Let's get a mandate yeah. for that. And what I've seen with friends and, and people is they might have been pro-vaccine for themselves to get two, but then they, they didn't understand the booster. So the booster was like pushing them past. Like why is, why? So it gets them to, everybody has mm-hmm. kind of their line that they're being pushed past now. Yes. And eventually everybody will get kind of pushed over the cliff. If it, uh, like it yeah. was a bad metaphor. Um, and then that's, that's when I think they're doing us a favor. They're waking more people up with this, like totalitarian kind of thinking and mandates. And, you know, also as time goes on, like all the stuff that they've done fear mongering for is not really panning out. So it becomes really difficult. I mean, it was again, interesting to see how the narrative shifted from, uh, deaths per day. And then when that dropped, then it became cases per day. Yeah. And I'm like, but this is the same thing as like reporting on car accidents countrywide. Uh, Oh my God, there was 250,000 car accidents today. No one would get in the car. Yeah. Um, But it's like, okay, but who, how many of those are serious and how many of those were fatal? And then you go, okay, that's why there is a risk, but I'm still prepared to get into my car because, you know, I I also have some thing in control. And they are
0: categorizing car accidents as let's say hail damage to cars is being categorized as car accidents or like a branch breaking and falling onto a car that's a car accident or like you name it right and this is exactly what we see happening like they're revising the data backwards now retroactively because they are being caught out and people have been saying this for two years now listen you are saying people are dying from covid when they're dying with covid and we know that the cdc doesn't use pcr tests anymore because they are unreliable and they test basically be false positives all the time because they, they, it's not a diagnostic tool. Like PCRs should not be used as a clinical diagnostic tool. So they massively overinflated the numbers to drum up fear, and now they're slowly walking that back. But there's no repercussions. Like who's going to jail? Like who's being held accountable for this? Like who? If I had to go and drum, if I had to go and shout fire in a crowded theatre, that is the standard for like where free speech normally ends, right? Because you can cause real harm. Okay, so that's the standard. So if you were going out there and shouting fire in a crowded theater, you're shouting COVID is going to kill you and you're overstating the numbers on purpose and then you walk them back after the fact. Like surely someone's going to be held liable for this. Now, I am cynical enough now already after going through the last two years think that most likely no one's going to be held liable for this. Um, but you should not be listening to these people at all or believing what they're saying because like they don't have your best interest at heart. Um, and... People seem to swing from one side up to the next. Um, mm-hmm. So the COVID thing happened. Black lives was Black Lives Matter. Well, COVID, then Black Lives Matter, and people just like swing to the next one. And now it's Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Now Zelensky is being portrayed as being the most <laughs> democracy-loving, freedom-oriented leader the world has ever seen. Meanwhile, this guy was in the Panama Papers uh, or the Pandora Papers than Pandora papers, um offshore a huge amount of wealth. Um he was brought to power by a CIA coup uh, which was uh, the color revolution um that happened in 2015 in the Ukraine. Um Ukraine is super corrupt super super corrupt and there have been there's been a civil war raging for the last eight years where there are not like real Nazis like literal Nazis not the way that leftists use the word Nazi but like someone who believes that there's like a super race And other people are subhuman and they must be eliminated. There's a lot of them in Ukraine and they're all running around the East, waging a low key genocide on ethnic Russians in, and, and like, I'm not a, I don't have a dog in the fight. Like I don't really care. This is an autocratic society. It's very similar to South Africa in many ways, because it's like super corrupt. Vladimir Putin got to where he is not by being a nice guy, you know, like, so yeah, you know, I don't feel like I don't know why I have to justify this this, this position, but like people are obviously going to say, oh, you're you're a, you're a, a Russia file.
1: But that's but the where... point being
0: like they're trying to gaslight us now to be like Ukraine good, Russia bad. You could be like mm, both of these guys are pretty bad, you know. Uh, don't drag don't drag us into this.
1: Well, to your point, uh, so the breaking points is the show that I I watch and what I really enjoy about it is Saga Enki is kind of more being brought up a conservative. And mm. Crystal Ball, I mean, that's her actual name, is been kind of brought <laughs> up. And she worked in like, MSNBC and is like more liberal. Mm. So they both each have stories that they present. But after that, then they discuss it together. So it's mm. like you have different opinions. And sometimes you'll see one of them come and, and like, oh, I never thought about it from that perspective. And now I can understand why they think that way. And they also come out on the, on the show and, and, uh, and like rectify when they've got things wrong. They're like, wow, we reported mm. this. We thought this was going to happen. It didn't. We got that completely wrong. Um, but they actually just recently reported that uh, that dude from Ukraine banned 11 parties. Yep, yep. And you know so everyone wants to say like oh he's, he's so democratic. Why would you do
0: that? And he banned a lot of socialist parties. Now riddle me this lefties who all have Ukrainian flags in their bio and they you know, they got the pronouns, they got the blue hair, they got the mask on in the profile picture, and now they have Ukrainian flags. All these left-leaning parties, socialist parties, have just been banned in the Ukraine. Um, so, at some point, you've got to have a look at this and be like, whoa, what, what the media is telling me, the corporate press is telling me about Ukraine is most likely not correct. Um, so, the death, the death toll in Ukraine so far is 900 people have died, civilians. So I look at some of the footage that's coming out of Ukraine. First off, some of the footage coming out of Ukraine is for, from computer games. They are using computer game footage that they've been busted on now, being like, look, we shot down three Russian helicopters. People are like, no, 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 guys, that's that's from a computer game. That's not real. <laughs> so if if I'm being led to believe by the media that the Ukraine is winning and beating the Russians, if they're winning, why are they posting video game footage? And yeah. if the Russians are shelling cities Mariupol they apparently they're shelling it and they're destroying the whole city why are they not more than a thousand civilians dead yet because I saw footage um of a drone going over Mariupol apparently and it was just burnt out husks of buildings like just completely flattened like apartment blocks just like dozens of them you know Mm. completely fucked. that's more than a thousand people that should have been killed in that alone if this if they were like firebombing the city this way so like a lot of it just doesn't add up obviously there's russian propaganda that's coming out of like Mm. russia obviously um you know i've got some russian uh, south african maids living in russia so hear their perspective on it they are being propagandized big time as well to believe that russia is like um you know great and has never done anything wrong in its life etc like you know there's there's that whole side of it too and i mean i'm mischaracterizing it they don't believe that strictly speaking but they are being propagandized as well the first casualty in war is always the truth, right? Um, but yeah. all of the all of the wrong people, in my mind, that have been lying about COVID are supporting Ukraine and like pushing this narrative, which makes me wary. What the hell is really going on there? Like, I don't have all the answers, but what I do know is that today is D-Day. That Vlad said to <laughs> unfriendly nations, uh, "If you want to buy Russian gas, you're paying in rubles as of tomorrow." So G7 countries came out yes two days ago and said, no, unacceptable, we won't. And Vladimir said, we're not a charity. <laughs> so now, and if you look at the chart of the ruble to the US dollar, it dropped off a cliff around the 24th of February when they invaded, and it bounced all the way back up to previous levels. Um, it's now slightly lower again. But like the, the the high went right back up to the previous levels where it was before the war. And that must be because people are stocking up on rubles because they got to buy oil and gas because Russia supplies 40% of Germany's gas. So Russia then also went out and said, we will, I think for the next three months till June, we will purchase gold at 5,000 rubles a gram. So they've fixed the price of gold basically. And what they've also done now Yeah, because the price of the ruble is fixed to gold, and because oil from Russia can only be bought in rubles, they've effectively pegged the ruble to both gold and oil. So, what they've done is they're doing a, there's an attack underway on the US dollar, petrodollar, is what's happening. Um, And the very interesting thing that's playing out here is that all the countries that did not go against Russia, which is the global south and the BRICS nations, um, it's a large part of the world are all involved in these trade networks. So uh, which link Russia, China, India, Pakistan, Iran, Brazil, South Africa, Mexico, like massive resource rich countries are being linked um, through trade networks, the belt and road initiative that China's building um, and Russia's got the raw materials and now they're paying their money to a gold backed system. And Russia also came out and said, we will accept Bitcoin in pay- as payments for oil and gas so i don't have the answer am i cutting out sorry yeah. did you kidding
1: um can you hear me now Again, i can change but it, like okay. the screen is uh static i don't know if you could see yourself or if i cut out or anything no no i can still see
0: everything's okay. fine clearly zach is not happy uh, about us talking about russia favorably like this
1: exactly <laughs> yeah. Interesting you,
0: but the the point i'm getting at is that like there's big 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 geopolitical things happening here and if, if you're just watching CNN, and you think that Ukraine is winning this war, um, and that that's the only thing that's happening, you are as misinformed as you were about COVID and Black Lives Matter and the war in Iraq, and, you know, pick, pick your psyop, really. Um, yeah, very interesting time to be alive.
1: Yeah. And so also to your, uh, something that also made me think about your comment about it depends on who wins a culture war is... How many years has it been since the end of World War II and, but you've got somebody in the States called Dan Carlin, who does hardcore history podcasts, long form. And this guy is drawing in letters from the front line. And he's talking about not even something to do with the West, to so yeah. battle between uh, Germany when they invaded Russia. And like he's got all, he's gone to such detail that you literally feel like you are one of those soldiers invading Russia. And then one of those Russian soldiers invading Germany when they are decimating them. And yeah. no, so for years, the narrative has always been that America is what saved the day for World War II. But the reality is if Hitler hadn't invaded Russia, I don't think Germany would, would have been defeated. Um, yeah. And Russia is actually who won both the war against, uh, the Germans helped because the Germans lost more people in one battle against Russia then the British and the Americans lost in the entire war Mm. and Japan also only, uh, threw in the towel when the Russians declared war against Japan as well, because up until that point, they hadn't really done much about it. But once Germany had kind of, uh, folded, once they'd been Mm. um, victorious against them, they were then obviously had resources and capabilities to think about what else. And then, uh, obviously Japan were trying to encroach on China and all that thing. So that was a bit of a threat. And there was nothing that the Japanese feared more than the Red Army. And so, as soon as mm. the Russians declared war, they were like, "We're done." Everyone yeah. goes, uh, "It was because of the nuclear bomb." But the Japanese, at that stage, had had you know cities decimated by a hundred thousand bombs. Yeah, and five bombs. Thinking, yeah. Whether you do a hundred thousand bombs or one, we you know we are we're not giving up. And that's mm. why it's so it's interesting to listen to the, like history like this because now, I mean, it, imagine if this had actually happened. In taught in all classrooms in the 60s and 70s around the world like how different the yeah. world used to be um and you know so we maybe we won't get to see or understand the full impact of like COVID and russia and everything like, like that but i think because we have so much access to information and it's not held by gatekeepers anymore and we can listen to podcasts like hardcore history you know then you can uh, really start to appreciate history and people's credentials more so than what some person's been put up for the, as a plant or something from the yep. CIA or like and the news. Yeah, and
0: th- but this is why it's so important for us to decentralize the future because you can see it happening today that those who control the narrative are pro censoring and just dist- book burning. They they're pro the destruction of history. It does not suit their narrative. Like um, if it was up to CNN, they would destroy any news or any this podcast, they would delete it and be like, no, 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 this goes counter-narrative, we cannot have it. Um, so the only way that we, if you want to maintain some semblance of uh, neutrality and in information, we've got to decentralize it um, so that it, it can, that all that digital information can last, you know, for the rest of the time, stored in a way that it can't be destroyed. Um, and and it, what's really happening on, where, in my mind, what's really going on is this massive battle that's raging between centralization and decentralization um that's it's entropy right entropy and people trying to organize that are like these two things pulling uh, pulling each other apart but humanity actually thrives best in a decentralized fashion where we yes we centralize to a small degree but as soon as we reach a certain scale the uh we pay for it in terms of culture and in terms of like social cohesion um there's you always got to pay the piper the bigger the scale gets the less personal it gets the more you build a one-size-fits-all system that cannot fit mm-hmm. everyone. And this is how you end up having people ground beneath the boot of totalitarianism, right? And that's yeah. effectively what totalitarianism is. is It seeks to control absolutely everything. It seeks to control your mind. Yeah. Um, and the totalitarian impulses that I see from world leaders all over the place, Justin Trudeau, Cyril Ramaphosa, Jacinda Dern, Emmanuel Macron, Joe Biden, for that's worth, who knows if he's actually making decisions or not, but the totalitarian impulses that I see from these people is like, it's terrifying. Yeah. Um, but then to see what does give me hope is to see that there are people on common folk who are unnamed, you know, like anon- anonymous people who are like, they're starting to understand the importance of decentralization. And then we have some champions, you know, who may let us down in the future, like it's the problem with heroes. But someone like Ron DeSantis, for example, yeah. um, who's standing up against this entire, this, this machine, um and people love him for it you know like that guy if him and trump run in 2024 the democrats got some trouble
1: i mean i don't know if you've been following the news recently but he's he's putting a ball together to prevent like five-year-olds being taught about yeah. the anti, uh,
0: anti-child grooming bill yeah
1: and disney's come out like condemning it or whatever but what the santos did yeah. is he and Internet then, on that, sorry for-
0: sorry to interrupt you, but on that point, a hundred dozen employees got, got busted in a sting involved in ch- in child trafficking. So it doesn't need to take a seat.
1: <laughs> well, that, but then also, they currently have cruisers that go to three islands in the Caribbean, where same-sex marriage is, like, not just not allowed, it's illegal. Yes. So if that's your opinion, then why are you, so? But, but that's what I'm saying. It's so nice when... DeSantos doesn't like try and uh, you know under undermine them in like a mm. you know, uh, who the hell are you to tell me what I'm doing? He literally goes and finds actual facts mm. and then presents the two of them. And it's like why, okay, if you have a problem with this, why are you still doing that? And you know, people then see that. And he's also yeah. because he he's pretty um like I don't know if you saw what happened with 60 minutes where they tried to do a, a target video on him. Mm um and they basically clipped segments of what their uh journalist was trying to answer him in like an hour and a half of him doing uh kind of like a press conference yeah She had consistently asked him the same question and what they did was they cut out his answers previously where he answered her and then made it look like he was a misogynist and yes. you know all terrible things and then he, all he did was he released the whole video and he didn't yes he didn't on like a whole attack on them. And he's just like, yeah, I'm disappointed on you guys. Like, because here's the video of what actually happened and we've got it uncut. And I think it's, it's one of the interesting things as well. It's like, I've also watching this as a South African in the States. It's also like, okay, so how would I behave when someone comes and tells me like, ah, oh, you know, I think I've been wrong instead of going like, yes, you've been wrong all the time. Just be like, okay, what makes you feel like it? And like, okay, great. And just be like, don't have to push my thinking that like, mm. oh, welcome, like, what took you so long? Uh, you know, this is how we've been thinking from the word go. Like, that doesn't really do any assistance. And I think that's sometimes what both sides get guilty of doing. And then they wonder why they push people more on one side than the other. Um, yeah. Instead of, oh, okay, you made a mistake. okay. Yeah.
0: You know, just to to illustrate how duplicitous the system media is and all this. So they've dubbed the bill the don't say gable. So they're trying to make it out to seem as if uh, Florida is discriminating as gay people. So everyone in South Africa who's catching on to this narrative um, thinks that DeSantis, who hasn't done their research, thinks that DeSantis is now anti-gay. But if they had to go and read the bill or just read the preamble to the bill or like just do like five minutes of, of research on this, they would realize that what this bill does, it means that from preschoolers up to grade three are not to be taught about sexuality that's all it is so that is not an outrageous or extreme thing to do at all like uh, grade three that's standard one how old are you in that you're like ten right.
1: eight years old nine
0: yeah like yeah. under and ten time. right yeah, yeah. And nine <clears throat> years old why should kids at nine years old be learning about sexuality i don't think they should um and this is not a fringe like thing to think about it so to to try to make out as if that is about like being anti-gay is completely duplicitous. Like it's clearly, they're just lying. That's not the case at all. Um, and this is what the corporate press does. And this is why I've gotten to a point now where I just believe them to be super toxic because you can't trust them on anything. Um, and even if there's a kernel of truth in something, they're using that kernel of truth to distort the, to distort the facts. And it's, and I think it's because they're getting shrill because they're dying. Like they're losing views. And the only way they can get engagement is through rage clicks just get eyeballs by saying the most outrageous thing and 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 take the Oscars, for example, whether it was fake or staged or not, the it's the best thing that's happened to the Oscars in the last decade, because all of a sudden people are interested in it. Again because Will Smith went up there and slapped Chris Rock. I mean, I'm of the opinion that actors act. So I wouldn't be surprised if it was fake. Maybe it's or not. Maybe it is real. Maybe Will Smith is bummed because his wife's been banging other people. Who knows? Um, either way, it's the only way they can be relevant is by creating rage clicks essentially is what is what it's come down to so i mean i, I don't well, even feel sorry
1: for them, for them because they brought rock. on themselves yeah it worked out pretty well for chris rock too because he uh right his, his uh, ticket sales went through the roof and he's like sold out everywhere
0: <laughs> yeah and it's got people like you and me who don't give a shit about celebrities talking about them i mean yeah it's wasting too much of my time this week to even thinking about these dudes but i mean ridiculous
1: but, they, <laughs> but yeah but it's But again, it's like those types of incidents, as basically mundane as they are, and Mm. for like the general impact in the world, what that does is it actually shows you more about all the different people and media channels and how they think about reporting than the actual event. Yeah. So, like, it's you can go literally watch if you you wanted to go to CNN, Fox, Jorgen. Uh, Russell Brand, you can have like all these different people and every single one of them will have a different take on that. And yep. what I've learned is whenever you whenever you have opinions like that it tells you more around the people than the actual event. And so if you, yep. if you are somebody who has been red-pilled and does think for yourself a little bit more and question things than just like swallowing everything whole then you get to this just serves as another reminder of like how uh, each of them has their own bias and how they're either using something to push something else that they're already spinning or yeah. if they're like open-minded and just like you know let's really think about this like what what if women had done this i mean it yeah. was one of the my favorite thing questions that was asked was like what was it what if it had been two white guys like what if it had been two women like all these they went through all the different scenarios like what what I wonder what people and the academy's opinions would have been with that as well well, because
0: they play identity politics, it would be different every time. Yeah, Whereas exactly. you and I, you and I look at it and we're like, "Well, the fact that a person went up and then hit another person is that's to, what's wrong about it." Um, whether it's race, uh, gender, identity doesn't matter, but to the woke, identity matters the most.
1: Um, I like for me as well. Like with uh, De like I'm more interested in like his like actions speak louder than anything mm-hmm. else. Yes. And, you know, so it's so easy to talk and everybody has an opinion about what should be done and what's wrong. And then like, often how I will get people to shut up is just awesome. Okay. So what should we do? And mm. cause it's easy to point out everything that's wrong. And yes. I think I also like, besides my, um, like data analyst background at work and having to present based on factual information, like also having my dad and his like philosophy of like you know when he was the chairman of the uh, complex that we lived in in, in um, Johannesburg, you know people would always come with like everything that was wrong, and then he would ask them, okay, so what should we do? And he's like, because it's very easy to complain, but yeah. if you if you don't have any solutions, then you're not thinking about things properly, mm. or you don't also understand the, uh, like the circumstances, of yeah. There's a reason why we have created, uh, and we 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 need you to uh, register for the stickers so people mm. can get into the complex. You might think it as an inconvenience because oh now I've got to come and walk 50 meters uh, on when I've fi- finished work. And why do I have to sign in and register and put my name and my ID number? It's like well because we're just making sure that if something happens, we can see uh, who has gotten and you know whatever. Just like yeah. also. Don't have it on your car and you don't get let in well we've given you two months to actually go yep. through this process and the guards have been instructed to not to let you in the complex and you will have to phone and person who lives there or someone else uh, or explain yourself and then people always get caught out um because they just don't want to do something like that which is actually in their best interest but they don't want to take the time to understand why they probably don't even attend the agms where they yeah. discuss these things with people and yes. that's what happens. I was like, everyone's this also, I think this is a problem. We don't have enough people like creating, teaching people how to create wisdom. Like how do you, because we've got an information overload. You can get mm. information, anything at the top of the hat, but it's like, how do you turn that into something tangible that you're actually going to use to move forward? That's positive mm. and not be like, Oh, you see, I told you this is why these people are bad. And this is why that's wrong. Um, mm. And like, you just have to take the, what, the human history of like how we have not learned from what we have done, and every, every empire has like thought that, no, 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 we are the, we are the one, um, yeah. eventually they just fall victim to the same thought processes and problems that other regimes have had, and then they crumble, and that is why they are not around today.
0: The tale of Ozymandias, I mean, it is exactly what happens, right? Um, you know, what we should do is stop the war in Yemen. Number one. People yep. don't know about that one. And stop the war in Ethiopia. War in Yemen, uh, three hundred over three hundred and fifty thousand people dead already, fourteen million people displaced, been running for a decade almost. The US directly funding the UAE and Saudi Arabia to wage war on Yemen. A bunch of people living in huts getting the fuck bombed out of them. So wear the Yemeni flags on your profile picture. And Ethiopia, half a million people dead already. And Ethiopia was like coming along pretty well for like the last decade. They were like making huge strides in development, and now it's all gone to shit again. Where the Ethiopian flags and people's profiles? Thousand people are dead in in Ukraine, guys. Like one death is too much, but like in the hierarchy of like how you rank how bad things, how fucked up things are in the world, using the amount of people killed is probably like a good metric. Um, yeah, but in
1: Ethiopia, like to your point, like. Uh, what I've realized is just as much as there is inequality in the world, there's also an inequality and outrage. And like uh, with the charity work that I've been involved in, like my philosophy is instead of trying to save people, like what are the processes that you can do to like provide them opportunities like education, which then helps them. I don't have to be there for the rest of their life. They are, oh, good they've, been given the opportunity, they get educated, and now they can go and create a life for themselves. And so understanding all those metrics, like Jesse does a lot of work uh, in Africa, building uh, schools, that those schools are built with the government where they have to provide like, you know, 10%, the community has to be involved. And that means that it's sustainable, because then it's not just Mm -hmm. like you give something and it's like a nice shiny toy and you throw it away. And so we were like, 250 million children die, like from from starvation Mm. every year like where is the outrage for that like why are people not like going what the fuck are we doing just say that again
0: 250 million children
1: yeah so that maybe it's 25 million but it's in the millions okay 25 Uh, million is still a huge number exactly like you know how many people have died from covid now um and like as you said five million before
0: they before they started bringing the numbers down so, uh, it's probably closer to
1: two and a half. Yeah. And I think that's yep. also, like, the word for me is consistency. And, mm. you know, if you, if you do get outraged by, if you are so enthusiastically outraged about something, then that's like you say, then what about Yemen? What about Ethiopia? And then why aren't you holding media's feet to the fire and saying, hey, why, why are you not reporting on this? Um, yeah.
0: If you're so outraged why are you not holding the media's feet to the fire? That's exactly How it. So much, why are people
1: so invested in it? Like, yeah. you know, I think yeah. it's, so what's interesting if you think about it is obviously COVID was around the world. It's affecting everybody. And the reason why the Russia Ukraine is gotten even like me, a little bit concerned is because there are nuclear weapons potentially that Russia could just go boop and that affects everybody obviously. Yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas that's not the case in like the Yemen and uh, Saudi Arabia case and it's not the case in Ethiopia either. Mm. So I think it's, again, like you can only, we we have so much that we bandwidth that we can deal with and it's only until something directly affects us or we choose to look at things holistically and go like the fact that, you know, so many children die from starvation, that's something that we should be able to do. Then people will choose to think like, oh, this thing affects me. Therefore, it must be important. Because mm. um, if it's affecting me, I mean, it must be affecting everybody. And yeah. and so that's like kind of I think as well what like drives the the fear within people. And then that the mainstream, well, no, the corporate media kind of are very good at weaponizing that. And yep. you know. Fear, I mean, fear, as I've seen, is like a, a pretty powerful tool to get people to, I mean, in fact, I was amazed at how long people stayed locked indoors. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and uh, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, really behaved. Like, mm. I was shocked, quite shocked, to be honest.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's probably because they, um, they could be, because they were getting STEMI checks, even though those are tiny um, in the grand scheme of things. But, like, they, were, they weren't dying they weren't they were like going hungry um I think we saw in South Africa in July last year the tip of the iceberg of what can happen in the world um when order degrades when entropy takes over um because sure say what you want like maybe there was some Zuma faction people in there maybe some Asian provocateurs I don't have all the answers for what happened in July I have no idea actually what happened in July still it's a but whatever was instigating it shit got out of control and there were tens of thousands of people hundreds of thousands of people just looting and going wild and no one had any control over that situation like we did numbers so we were like okay if there's 10,000 active military pe- personnel in south africa there's the, the army size is 70,000 but they can only deploy like 10,000 if they deploy 10,000 people in durban um how big is Durban square meters wise or square kilometers wise? How many people can they, how many military personnel can they actually deploy in, in the whole area? And you worked it out and it's like a very small amount of people per like square hundred meters, you know, <laughs> Not like, and, and then if you take that countrywide, you're like, okay, the military can deploy like one person per like every 20 square kilometers, you know, like <laughs> they just can't control the situation. Um, and it gets, it gets out of control quickly.
1: But what was amazing about that situation was um, that everybody who was that basically divided the country in the way that it should be. And yeah. People stopped seeing color, and they started being like lawless and lawful. Yes. Yeah. And the lawful were like, we don't fucking give a shit about the police and the government. Like, we're gonna yeah. actually just band together now. Yeah. And I mean, To me, what was amazing was the speed with which people were resourceful and, like, creating apps with, like, walkie-talkies on their phone, and then they were, like, communicating and setting up uh, perimeters and, you know, like, we had, I had family and friends that were in Durban, so, like, we were getting updates from them, and they were the ones sending video of, like, the stuff, and I was like, holy shit, like, never in a million years, think about that, and... That's also one of the reasons why so much innovation comes out of South Africa is because we have so many mm. challenges, it actually drives innovation. That's why we've got so much stuff that we actually can export to the rest of the world. But that gave me the biggest hope, is, as crazy as it was, Like for me, there was no, there's no way this country will descend into Zimbabwe because there's too many. That showed that there, if there was going to be like a revolution of some kind and shit would just yeah. go to hell, that was going to yeah. be it. And yeah. especially at the peak of COVID, you know, people have been sitting around, they're fucking starving. I mean, yeah, if I was starving and I saw this shit happening, I'd probably also like jump in and yeah. see what I you're not thinking like, oh, this is how long is this gonna feed me for, but now I've just screwed over my local shop and burnt it down, which is much closer than it's anything else. Sustain you know?
0: sustain me with food for the next, you know, my future. Because they've just fucked themselves in the long term, but in the short term, all your neighbors are getting flat screen TVs and washing machines, like, obviously, you're going to join in, right? Because you have nothing. I mean, I, I completely understand why, uh, you know, but it shows you the thin veneer of civilization. But it also shows you South Africa got stress tested, and I yes. believe we passed. Um,
1: that's, a, that's a perfect word, I think. Yeah.
0: And, it, and we passed not because of any centralized authority, we passed because of decentralization, and people independently banding together and bringing spontaneous order. Um, so yeah, they gave me a lot of hope and the fact that we can't be oppressed by a by a militaristic government because they just can't just can't do it they ran out of bullets on day one right? they can't do shit yes, even <laughs> they ran out of bullets on day one and the c- civilians who were making their own bullets was su- providing the police with nine mil rounds
1: <laughs> crazy <laughs> it was absolutely ridiculous um, again, andrew that's I mean, uh I,
0: yeah. sorry carry on. Yeah.
1: Uh, no, I was just going to say, like, I've never really been pro gun, but mm-hmm. I've also never really thought about it in depth enough to be like, uh, yeah, actually, I think you know, n- now that we've gone through, like, with South Africa, it does help if people are able to yes. protect themselves. Yes. Absolutely. Um, do people need to have semi, or do we need to sell semi automatic rifles? No, like, that's that shouldn't be on the table, which happens. No,
0: us. we should be selling full automatic rifles. <laughs> Because (laughs) the thing is a law-abiding person with a gun, whether he's got a semi-automatic or an automatic rifle, that's not going to change what he does with that rifle. He has that thing for self-defense. He's not a psychopath. We know that 4% of people are psychopaths and they're going to do bad things. So there's that. But you have much, statistically, the biggest killer of people over the last 100 years have been governments. So the best way to stop government killing you is by being armed and being organized and having the ability, as we've seen now in in Ukraine, for example, anti-gun left-wing people are cheering the fact that the government in Ukraine is handing out fully automatic rifles to anyone who can show Ukrainian passport and wants to come and take pick up the gun to fight the Russians. Why? The Russians have got crazy technology. They've got you know fifth-generation fighter jets and like those insane rocket things that shoot like two hundred rockets out of them, but Every Ukrainian with a fully automatic weapon will stop the Russian onslaught because they have to go through the cities and Mm. it's a death trap and you can't overthrow people that are armed. And that's why it's so important for people to be armed because the biggest threat is the government Um, and and when things go to shit like it did in in Durban. So, I mean, I would love to live in a world where no one needed a gun. That would be fantastic. But unfortunately, we live in reality where bad people have guns and therefore good people have to have guns. And therefore, good people need to be as well armed as bad people. Because the bad guys who are doing the cash and transit heists and the farm murders and all this shit, they armed with fully automatic weapons that they've <laughs> stolen
1: or bought from the police. So... Did you see yeah. that amazing meme of the guys that went viral around the world uh, who escaped uh, a, an attempted uh, cash and transit heist? Yeah. And, and they, yeah, were like, they were like, yeah, they were just like, have no fear. Like the war in, uh, in Ukraine is going to be over because they're on their way. <laughs> Sending Leo Pretorius.
0: Bell for Robbie. Yeah. yeah. I actually messaged. So that guy became like an instant celebrity. I dropped him a message on LinkedIn of all places. And he replied. He was like, thanks so much. I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking LinkedIn. I love the worst social network.
1: <laughs> oh, that is so ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, I have to get up now.
0: <laughs> his name's Leo Pretorius. What a legend.
1: Yeah, what a legend.
0: Yeah. Anyway, Andrew, uh, we're on two hours now. Um, this has been fantastic. Thank you very much. Where can if, if people want to follow what you're doing? Um, I know you've got a couple of other things on uh, that you that you're busy with. Uh, maybe we should just briefly touch on those before we wrap up. I know you're working with some um, MPOs in MPOs in education.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, the easiest way to find me is just go to Andrew365.com, and um, then I've got my. my social media and stuff linked to that so people can uh just easily find it that way but um but yeah one of the the cool things that we're working on at the moment is uh, an education project in south africa where it's nice to actually meet a politician who has the issue at hand at the central point which is the children and is creating an innovative system to also understand that the way the government structure has been, and thanks to Zuma, corruption is at every level, and so has formed this partnership with uh, the NGO that I support, One Heart, so that you know no money goes through government, and then we, between the two of us, we all have the expertise and the success stories of what's been achieved in the last couple of years, and we just partner with uh, government organisations. So what's nice, with uh, corporates and uh, private individuals, so. It's nice. It's like for the first time, like all the things that would normally be negative of like, oh, you know, your reach is too small. So we'd rather support somebody who's got a bigger thing. Well, what's bigger than national? Um, and like making sure that kids who live in the Eastern Cape and like farmlands are also going to have access to the same information and the teachers are also going to have access to the teacher training that comes with that. Um, and then like the corruption thing, oh, no money goes through government. So it's like, it's quite nice to actually be part of this project where, you know, we, the central issue of like providing equal opportunity for kids to have great education, um, is finally starting to, you know, get over the hump of all the shit that happened obviously during apartheid for like 50 years. And then the difficulty that the government had in trying to overcome that. And also that kids had only been taught in English and Afrikaans curriculum wasn't developed in all 11 languages. Um, I mean, fuck, I don't know about you, but if, you, if I had to go through school and be taught in Causa, like it would have been a dog show for me and I probably wouldn't have finished school. So it's nice that like, there's been a lot of uh, learnings to get to this point And I feel like it's the first time where actually like a real collaboration and collaborative approach is uh, it's actually to be honest with you, probably a, an amazing case study that, you know, even in the States where, you know, no parent should ever have to think about where they have to send their kid to school where they should live so that their kid can go to the school because the education Mm -hmm. system or not and even in the states like parents have to genuinely think about that because of the zoning and all the different things like that so um it's unfortunate even if you are the one of the wealthiest countries in the world um it's not necessarily a focus for everybody and that's why you also need people at that level to have it a focus and have the right focus like she's never asked like do you support the ANC or, you know, what have you, what have you, the only thing she's asked in the past is like, what are your success stories? You know, and we can show her how we reached 20,000 children with the donation we got from Discovery Vitality in the Eastern Cape and the Western Cape. That was like, okay, like, you know, you, you use what, you mean, here's the money we were given and this is how we implemented it. And this is what the costing is. Cause obviously being a section 18, a uh, nonprofit means that you can only give tax certificates to people if you've been audited every year and you can obviously pass certain standards. So again, with one of the questions of like, oh, but how do we know the money is gonna be used for what it is, well, you know, give us a small amount now and we will very clearly demonstrate that. And then the next audit will give you all the financials and you can actually see how it's being used. Um, So it's actually given me a lot of hope, uh, like even through all the stuff with COVID and what I've learned in getting into the space is, again, like, unless you actually look for it, there, you don't you don't know about it because yeah like no one wants to talk about the success stories it's that that 's not fear driving um, and the amount of uh, NGOs and uh, stories i've heard of like what people are doing in townships of their own money um, to try and support orphans or vulnerable kids or something like that like the stories are out there like what if I think if more South Africans heard about what people were doing, we would actually have so much of a greater um, compassion for each other and and I think a greater hope and less cynical about where the country's going because the reality yeah. is, no. The one thing Zuma did for everybody as a focus was to make sure that no one uh, puts their hope in government solving the problems. Amen. So, yeah. But to your point of like, you know, um, decentralizing things, education is a huge thing. So mm. if we had to wait for things to happen um, at the community levels, that would probably take a long time. But now with this project even if it doesn't like necessarily get rolled out in the next two years we will get pockets where we will then be able to implement that and show the success which will then build the trust because obviously i mean uh i think south africans have a lot to uh, be distrustful of and i think a healthy skepticism is always good Mm. and but what's nice is now it's a very different conversation we're not like going with our hands out like oh please support us you know no kids. Now it's like, this project's going to happen. Um, the, the, the difference is like, do you want to be a part of the change? It's almost like in, uh, the seventies when the ANC were like recruiting people to like,
0: yeah.
1: Or do you want to just like look back on your life and be like, wow, man, I actually could have made it. I could have been part of that rather than just sitting on the sidelines and not doing anything. Yeah absolutely
0: uh what's so what's the name of the charity that you that you work with it's uh one heart for kids one, heart for kids. one uh, heart for kids and what's the what's the website where people can track that down
1: it's that.co.za okay one heart I think and then one all one all lowercase all one word amazing all right so that's
0: andrew365.com and oneheartforkids.co.za if you're looking okay. to check you out All right, Andrew, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, we're definitely going to go on a hike again soon before you head back to the States. And uh, yeah, I look forward to it.